Let's see if you've been listening. He is risen. You have been listening. Excellent. I missed out on some of the, the songs we sang uh, because I got to go transform and change my clothes. But one of the things I love most about Easter is because of Jesus, we are changed inside and outwardly. We are not the same anymore. We don't have to be. So today, I want to keep things really simple. And I want to do it through a term I first learned in mathematics, which is surprising that I even paid attention because I've made abundantly clear how I feel about math in the past, and it's nothing good. Uh, but there's a term in math called the inversion principle or the inversion process, where if you've got a negative, you've got a positive, things like that. Well, the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the church in Corinth. Many of you might be familiar with it. It's called 1 Corinthians. He didn't name it that. He just wrote to a church in Corinth. They're actually to a group of house churches that were having some problems. And he loved them enough to tell them, one, that he cared deeply about them, two, that he expected them to grow up, (laughs) and three, that there's a better way to go through life. There's a reason that we talk about Jesus the way we talk about him. And there's a reason that we should be living a certain way because of who Jesus is and what he's done. And so for the past four weeks, moving into this week, our final week in our Why Easter series, we've been asking questions and answering the most basic points of what's the point of Easter? Why is Easter so important for humanity? Week one was the fact that if you haven't noticed... We tend to be broken people. We tend to choose ourselves over what's right. We can define it all sorts of different ways, and I'm not going to review, but at the end of the day, we looked at the verse that says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but the free gift of God is eternal life. And that free gift is only found in one place, Jesus Christ. He is risen Missed it a little bit on that one, but we'll get there. We'll keep trying. Then the second week, we asked the question of why would we call Jesus Lord of Lords and King of Kings? And we began to look at the geopolitical state of affairs across the world. And I'm not going to name names, but not all of us want to put our trust in the leaders our governments have placed over us. Or we might go into work on Tuesday after the red days are done and we might realize that sometimes our leaders don't make the best decisions. And you know what? I had to be honest with you and say that even in churches, sometimes leaders don't make the best decisions. But our faith and our confidence isn't in man. It is in the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. We need a leader that we can trust and that we can rely on. And his name is Jesus and he is risen. You know where I'm going with each point, so you're catching on. Well done. Number three, week three, we talked about the question of why doesn't anybody understand me? And we remembered for all of us in the room, probably those teenage years when we looked at our parents and said, parents, you just don't understand. And we've often felt the same way about life. There's nobody we can talk to. There's nobody that's dealt with what we've dealt with. This is a problem. And we looked at John 1, 1 that says, in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God. And later on, as you make your way through John, and I know I'm talking fast, I will slow down. 
But as John continues to write, John highlights the light, life, and love of Jesus Christ that we are to reflect. And he says that God became man and pitched his tent among us. And I love that imagery. One, because I'm a big fan of camping, but even more because it said, here I am, and for a temporary time, I'm going to walk with you and show you. Because campers don't typically stay camping. They go back home. Jesus, in the same way, pitched his tent on earth for approximately 33 years. He did his job, and when it was finished, he was ushered home to the right hand of the Father until he returned. And we rejoice gloriously because in Jesus Christ, we have someone that understands us. We have one that goes to the Father on our behalf. What does that mean? It means when we don't even know how to pray, when we are struggling so much, like my microphone is today, God hears our prayers through the miraculous work of Jesus Christ, through the empowering of the Holy Spirit, because... Hold on, give me just one second. I'm about to have to do something embarrassing, but I'll give it one more try before I walk down the middle aisle. Okay. Because of Jesus Christ, because he is risen again, we can go to the Father and cry out, Abba, Father. And Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary. Come to me, all who are carrying heavy burdens, and you will find rest, for I am gentle and meek. My strength is under control, and I can get you through anything. Many of us misinterpret 1 Corinthians ten thirteen, saying we can handle anything. Ladies and gentlemen, we can handle nothing. Jesus Christ can handle everything, because he is risen. Okay, that one, we're getting worse here. When I say he is risen, we say, hallelujah, he's alive. Okay, he is risen. And because he's alive, we have a friend. He says, I no longer call you anything but friends. He even goes on and we're told we are adopted as sons and daughters of the most high God, co-heirs, co-inheritors with Jesus Christ. How cool is that? And then last week, we realize that, yeah, not only can we not save ourselves, but the cost, the penalty for our sins is greater than you and I can bear. And we just can't pay it. No lamb is as good of a substitution as it was. No lamb was pure and spotless enough that it could do the job. There was only one pure and spotless lamb. And he gave his life as a ransom for many. At communion, we remember that Jesus Christ said, this is my blood ushering in a new covenant spilled for you for the forgiveness of sins. The new law is through Jesus. He's not abolishing the law. He's completing the law. And we reminded each other that that's why this entire, I know this is a really small Bible, but most of you are using a digital device. So this entire book, in whatever form you read it, points to Jesus Christ. It was very amazing for me last week. We finally got to the inspired exhibit and then I was there for the closing ceremony uh, again on Wednesday uh, with their international pastors of Hong Kong. And I got to see one Bible that was very, very poignant to me and it was called the Nanking Bible. I like that Bible because tw twice a year I go to Nanjing and I'll go there again and I think, 
three weeks to visit some of our teams that, that are doing great work there. And people so valued God's word that whatever access they had, they would carefully write it down, painstakingly translating it as best they could, and they would carry it, and they would protect it. And as oppression, and as the cultural revolution came, it was hidden, and it was protected because people had hidden God's word in their heart, and they valued the word of God, knowing that the entire word of God points to Jesus Christ, and he is risen. He is alive, and he is the one that successfully paid the ransom for our sins. But then we look at this idea today. I'm sorry, this is hopefully the last time. We look at this idea. We come to Easter service. We come and we celebrate baptisms. We come and we celebrate that 12 people gave their lives to Jesus Christ and he's transformed them into a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And we often come away asking the question, what does this mean for you and me? And this is where the inverse property needs to come into play. If you would open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you have a physical one, great. If you do not have access to any type of Bible, no problem. Raise your hand. We've got some Bibles in the back. Or you can see, uh, if we can go to the scriptures, they'll be on the screen, uh, I hope. And I want to read to you a rather lengthy uh, passage. We're going to look at verses 12 through 26 and then jump on to the end, which we've already sung about and heard. And we'll read on the screen. And it says this. Paul is talking about this idea of the resurrection of the dead. Why is it so important? My very point today. Why is the resurrection so important? But Paul has this brilliant legal mind. You ever know those people that can argue anything and win? Even if they're dead wrong, they can still do it. I believe Paul was that type of guy. He could have argued his way out of anything because logically he could give you an explanation, he could prove it, and he could display it. And when you look at, and this is just one continuous flow of thought for Paul. We broke it up into chapters uh, over a thousand years later. But when he writes this, he's addressing the fact that there are those that call themselves follower of the ways, Christians, but they say there's no resurrection from the dead. And Paul's basic answer is, huh? If there's no resurrection from the dead, what's the point? And so that's the context of what he's writing going on. He's already told the church how to live. He says it starts with love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast. He's gone on to remind us that we are called to unity, that if we call on the name of Jesus Christ, he's given us gifts, and it is a sin not to use those to honor him. He's called us to be together, to work together for his glory, saying that the world knows us by our love. And when he gets to chapter 15 in our Bibles, he says this, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection from the dead? In other words, we are preaching. We've been telling you Christ rose again. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised, right? He's just basic logic. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. That's encouraging. More than that, we are found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he didn't raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. 
then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ will be made al- all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And then we go on and we find at the end in verses 54 and onward, maybe we don't have those. Now, okay, this is what we hear at the very tail end as Paul's concluding his thoughts. He says this, starting in verse 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality... Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Lord, you are risen, and I pray that these little memory points that we have today would point us to a transformed life in you. I pray for those all over the world that have yet to know you as their Lord and Savior. Please make today like, days like today be days when we say, here I am, Lord. My life is yours. In your name I pray. Now remember, our basic premise is that he is risen. Good. Now because he is risen, then what we can do is we look at this chapter, 1 Corinthians 15 and verses 12 through 20, give these negative statements. And I got this idea from another pastor named John Piper that we can actually flip these. And if the negative is true, so is the inverse. The positive then becomes true for those in Christ. Now, why do I say in Christ? Because it was one of Paul's favorite two words to put together. Over 200 times does he talk about believers as being in Christ. We have been adopted as sons and daughters of the Most High God. We are in Christ. We are a new creation. All of these are ways Paul is referring to the fact that we are his. It's why baptism is so important. We are publicly declaring to the world that we are in Christ and we are his a new creation. Sin has died, it's death, and we are alive, new in Christ. And because Christ is risen, he has inverted everything. Sin has lost its power. And if sin has lost its power, we can't lose because we are his. And what do I mean by that? Well, here's just a few basic points that we want to look at. First, because Christ is risen, We are forgiven. What do I mean by that? Well, look at verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. If Again, these are words that sometimes we don't use. Futile means useless, a waste of time. So what Paul is saying here is making the argument, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, you're wasting your time. You're useless and you are still in your sins. 
you are not forgiven. What's the inverse of that? If Christ has risen from the dead, we are forgiven. He gave us forgiven. He gave us forgiveness. And he also invites us to give it away to others. And I was trying to think about how do we remind us that we need to apply that today. And I've been reading a great little book by Eric Metaxas called Seven Women. And he highlights seven Christian women that are heroes of the faith that have lived throughout history. And one of them, one of my favorites, in fact, we just had my daughter read her book. Uh, it's called The Hiding Place by Corey Tenboom. You see, Corey Tenboom uh, was put in a concentration camp. Uh, she found out years later that her mother and father had passed away in concentration camps, as did her beloved sister Betsy. But because of a clerical error, instead of being killed, uh, Corey was set free. The, uh, the irony of it all was that before she was set free, she had to be shown to be healthy enough to be released from the, what they called a prison, but was really a concentration camp. And because she'd been treated so poorly, she had to wait a couple weeks until in an infirmary until she was healthy enough to be released from the prison she was in. And years went by, and God continually transformed this woman that had held on to Christ tightly when she had lost everything. And she began to tell her story of her faith in God and the forgiveness that she had felt that she had to give to others. She would go around the world telling about not only what she had gone through, but the reason for the hope that she had in Christ Jesus in the most difficult of circumstances. Years later, in 1947, Corey tells this. She was put to the test while speaking in a Munich church. If you don't know, Munich is in the heart of Germany. At the close of the service, a balding man in a gray overcoat stepped forward to greet her. Corey froze. She knew this man well. He'd been one of the most vicious guards at Ravensbrück, which was her concentration camp, one who had mocked the women prisoners as they showered. It came back with a rush, she wrote. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man, all came rushing back. And now he was pushing his hand out to shake hers and saying, a fine message, Fräulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, this is Corey speaking, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. Let's pause right there and think for a second. This man was responsible for the death of her sister. She had seen this man torture her and torture countless others. This man had humiliated her and done unspeakable things to those around her, and she had seen it as a teenager and young adult. And in so doing, years later, she's faced with a man saying, that was a great message. It was this man. How would we feel? I know how I would feel, and it wouldn't be, oh, I'm so glad to see you. I'm not even sure I would be thankful if that person had come to know the Lord. I think I would want that person to suffer in my flesh. That's, that's the conflict that Corey was facing. But she goes on, and this is what she writes, and I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, 
like I said, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He wouldn't remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. I was face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk. He was saying, I was a guard there. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there. But I would like to hear it from you, from your lips as well, Fraulein. Again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there. I whose sins had again and again had to be forgiven. And I could not forgive. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow and terrible death simply for the asking? The soldier stood there expectantly, waiting for Corey to shake his hand. She wrestled with the most difficult thing I'd ever had to do. For I had to do that. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition. That we forgive those who have injured us. How did Christ teach us to pray? Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who've sinned against us. Standing there before the former SS man, Corey remembered that forgiveness is an act of the will, not an emotion. Jesus, help me, she prayed. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. Corey thrust out her hand. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother. I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did that day. But even so, I realized it was not my love. I had tried and didn't have the power. It was the power of the Holy Spirit. He is risen, and because he is risen, we are forgiven. And because we are forgiven, we can forgive those who sinned against us. The night before he was betrayed... Jesus is praying shortly before he's betrayed, actually. And he says, not my will, but yours be done. Similar to what Corey is saying, God, help me. They will be forgiven. Do we remember that? He is risen. And you're still awake. Because he is risen, because Jesus rose from the dead, not only... Are we forgiven and have the freedom to forgive others? We have a friend we can rely on because our faith isn't in vain. He did what he'd promised he'd do. If Jesus didn't do these things, he broke one promise, which means he broke them all. We have to understand that's how the promises of God works. He does not break his promises. We do. He does not. He is perfect. That was one of the conditions of him being the atoning, the perfect sacrifice for our sins. He could not sin. He did not sin. 
He was tempted even up to the last moment. Can you imagine how tempting it must have been for him to see the Garden of Gethsemane and think, oh, I could make a run for it and no one would know. There's only three men and they were asleep. He could have made a run for it, but he didn't. He was faithful to the promises he had, been, he had made. He was faithful to the prophecies that had gone on 700, 400, 300, many hundreds of years before, not 300. And because of that, we have one we can rely on. Just like right now you are trusting the chair you are sitting on, we can trust in our relationship with God to be ever true, to be ever stable, and to be immovable. Why do I know that? Listen, you have, to, you have to use your English comprehension skills a little bit to make sure you understand what's going on here. But verse 15 says this, or verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching in vain is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are putting our faith in the very promises and the very truth of God. God himself through Jesus Christ saying, you are now my friends. My promises are true and I will never leave you nor forsake you. If all of that is not true, we're wasting our time and our faith is in vain. If, however, it is true, the inverse is then that we have a true friend that we can rely on because he did exactly what he promised he would do. Every time he spoke, he fulfilled his promise. You have that kind of friend in your life? There was a famous TV show on, and I, I want to say around the early 2000s, Regis Philbin was the host, and it was called Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? You ever heard of that show? Some of you may have, have heard of it. It's a long time ago, I know. But one of the things about that show is you would go through a series of questions, and you had these lifelines. What a great biblical principle there, where you could phone a friend and ask them if they knew the answer. So you'd hoped to have a friend that was smart and that would give you good advice. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus looked at his disciples and today I call you my friends. And we are invited into that relationship with him and we can call on him at all times because he never breaks his promises. He never fails. We fail him. We struggle to fulfill the promises we make before him. And he continues, just like we saw in Hosea, to invite us home, to bring us back to himself. We can rely on him. Because he rose from the dead, we also have a true and absolute foundation. Everything the apostles preached is true. Their preaching was not in vain. Because if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we are even forced to be mis we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we've testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise. If it's true, the dead aren't raised. If Jesus isn't risen, None of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John are true. None of it matters and we're wasting our time. But because Jesus rose from the dead, because the testimony is true, we have a true and absolute foundation in a world that tells us there are no absolutes. He is risen. Because he is alive, we can have faith that his way is the right way that he is the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father except through him, that what the apostles claimed to be true, what if you went to the inspired exhibit, you've seen the veracity, the truthfulness of God's word that stretches over two millennia uh, and even longer. We have the Dead Sea Scrolls that are shown to be 
Oh, so old. I can't remember the exact ages of some of them. And it's amazing that God's word has been preserved when so much of human history is lost or so separate from the original accounts. Yet God's word continues on. Why? Because his word isn't just what's written in a book. His word is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. And it goes with us and it transcends time. Because his word is rooted in the person of Jesus Christ and he is alive. And he is absolutely the one we can rely on. His ways are absolutely trustworthy. And his sayings are absolutely true. In an era where we're saying there are no absolutes, Jesus stands before us all and says, I went to the cross to be the one true absolute. My life is a ransom for many, that you may have life to the full, both now and forevermore. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we will live, as will all who've called on the glorious name of him. Paul says in verse 18, then those who have also fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If there is no resurrection from the dead, they're dead and that's it. But the inverse says, We will see them again. We will be with them for all eternity in glory. N.T. Wright says it this way, if we take the New Testament seriously, we ought to see that the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus is is the means by which God's kingdom is actually launched on earth as it is in heaven. Remember, the kingdom of God is about the already happened. He has risen victoriously and he is returning again. And we are called to live a certain way right now as we wait in expectation for Jesus to come back. We have life and have it to the full now because Jesus rose from the dead. Sin has lost its grip on us. We don't have to be tethered down to sin. We're not handcuffed to sin anymore. We don't have to be. Because Jesus rose from the dead. If he didn't, sin is still our master. We are still a slave to sin, as are all who've called on his name that have gone before us. But the inverse says that all who've called on the name of Jesus will be saved. And for those that have already died, that have been found righteous by the blood of the Lamb, you know what? We will spend eternity with them, and it will be glorious. It's why a Christian funeral is such a celebration. It's not that we're saying we're happy this person has died, but it is that we're saying we're celebrating they've been completely healed and that we will see them again and we will enjoy their presence at the feet of God for all eternity. This isn't the end. This is but the beginning. Because he is risen. I must be... Must need to keep moving on. You're, 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 sl- you're slowing down here. Because he rose again, not only that, but we have a life that is worth living. Some might even say a life that is worth being envied or that is enviable. What do I mean by that? Well, verse 19, Paul's saying, if we're only living for this life, if this life is all there is right now, this is the best it's going to get. One uh, theologian used to say that for those that don't believe in the name of Jesus, this is the closest thing to heaven you'll ever see, your world right now. For those that believe in Jesus Christ and have accepted him as their Lord and Savior, this is the closest thing to hell you will ever experience. 
And so what we see here is Paul saying, if this is all there is, and we're testifying about a risen Christ that has conquered our sins once for all, he's paid a ransom, and if none of that's true, people should feel really sorry for us. Because, I mean, I've given my whole life. I mean, my title is Pastor Mike. And I'm wasting time. I am a liar if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. And you've been giving money to a charity that's wasting your money because we keep trying to tell more and more people about Jesus. We're helping fund that GID team and we're wasting our money. We should be pitied. We should be sad and embarrassed. But, okay, I'm warning you, it's coming. He is risen. If he is alive... Our lives are full of the goodness and grace of God. What do I mean by that? Paul calls himself the chief of sinners. He calls himself the worst of sinners. He calls himself all sorts of horrible names because he understood the depth, the, what we call the depravity of sin. He understood that, man, on my own, I was a horrible human being. In fact, so much so that he would seek to put those in prison or hope they would die, those that were called followers of Jesus. But in verse 10 of chapter 15, he makes a different statement. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than most, than any of them, Though it was not I, but it was the grace of God that was with me. What he's saying is that the grace of God, because Jesus is risen, has transformed me. And I have given my life to letting everybody know who Jesus is. That he is risen. And if he is alive, we've got the best lives available that we could live. How cool is that? We don't put a lot of thought into that. We often think about following Jesus as what we get. But because he is alive... What we get is a life with meaning, a life that has eternal purpose, a mission that has value beyond money, a mission that has value beyond the cost of flats in Hong Kong or in anywhere in the world. It's a mission that has eternal consequence. We are invited to such a full life that our retirement fund is built solely on the fact that we are building lives, as Francis Chan said, not just for the next 50 or so years, if I make it that long, but for the next billion. And we get to invite others into that relationship. Because he rose again, we have a life worth envying that is to be, we have a life worth living that is to be envied by all. Let me ask you, do people look at your life and wish they had it? This isn't about money. Please don't misunderstand me. Do they look at your disposition? Do they look at your attitude? Do they look at your contentment when things go sideways, when there are problems? And do they see you? And and please, let me be transparent. I struggle with this. I struggle with getting frustrated with others when I know there's an easier way. And so I am not perfect, but I am learning, and I think we all are in this room. Do others see us in us a joy that God has placed us here as Esther had to learn for such a time as this? Because he is risen, we have life that is full. 
And we get to invite others into that, into life that is 1 Corinthians 13, full of joy, patience, kindness. Oh, no, that's Galatians 5. I'm getting my, you understand the idea. Both in 1 Corinthians 13 and Galatians 5, we're shown a life that lives when we're dependent on God, a life that is full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And that is also what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Are those the things that mark our lives? Or is our stuff what marks our lives? People might want our stuff. People might want our stuff, but that's not what satisfies. Famous commercial in America tells us what really satisfies is a Snickers bar. Did you know that? That's what really satisfies. That's the satisfaction in life everyone is craving. A piece of chocolate with some peanuts in it. Now, I'm not going to lie. I like a Snickers bar, and for about 10 minutes, it is very satisfying. But then you know what happens next? I'm crazy thirsty because it's so chewy that I just long for a drink. How true in Christ that we long for more of him, that our lives should be drunk deeply of the very word and breadth of Jesus Christ, that others look at us and say, I want to take a drink of that pool because that Snickers bar is not satisfying. The way I'm living my life, it's not enough. You might have a billion dollars and you might be looking thinking, I wish there was more. There is because he is risen Amen. Oh yeah, and there's one more thing. Because he rose from the dead, death is dead. Isn't that cool to say? Say it. Death is dead. Now, what do I mean by that? Because uh, uh, sadly, we've said goodbye to a number of saints in our church. Uh, A dear friend of our church family, Anna, who's just back, just lost her husband. And we mourn and we grieve with her. And we are saddened by that. But we also know that death has not conquered her husband because he is alive in Christ. He has been healed. And for those in Christ Jesus, this is but the beginning. Death has lost its control on us. Sin, the wrath, that very cup of judgment that Jesus talked about right before he was betrayed, it has been satisfied because of what Jesus has done. And because death is dead, because Jesus Christ rose from the dead, we are alive. What do I mean? Verse 54, when the perishable puts on us the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, because of what Jesus has done, we get to live forever in Christ. Then shall come to pass the saying that was written long ago, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? For those in Christ, we press on, taking hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of us. Easter, N.T. Wright tells us, commands us to think about a non-corruptible physicality, about a physical world. In other words, it's real. Jesus is real. And he is restoring all things to himself. And he will come back. And he will usher in a new heaven and a new earth. And when he does, this world is no longer subject to death and decay. And that process has already begun. And it will be completed when once for all, Satan is thrown into the lake of, the, lake of fire. And we are ushered in to living the way we were created to live. And so while we are here, we are on a mission to let everyone know that death is dead and we are invited into life. 
life that has meaning, that has purpose, and that can say boldly what we see, Revelation. This writer, John, who you've heard me talk a lot about, wrote it this way, given from the the hand of God. Worthy is the lamb that was slain and has redeemed us to God by his blood. Worthy is the lamb to receive power and riches and strength and honor and glory and blessing. He is worthy of all of our praise because he is risen. Why Easter? Because he lives. Why Easter? Because God's will continues to be done. God's kingdom has already come and will be completed at the day of Christ's return. And because we are free, we are alive. He is risen. Let's sing because he lives as we close.